Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams. I'm Julie Sternberg. And I'm Eve Yohalem. In this episode, we're discussing the life and significance of Constance Baker Motley, a groundbreaking civil rights lawyer and the first black woman to become a federal judge. Her definitive biography, Civil Rights Queen, Constance Baker Motley and the Struggle for Equality, is out now. The author is Dean Tomiko Brown-Nagan. In her introduction to the book, Dean Brown-Nagan writes, Motley's world-changing accomplishments, which made her a queen in her time, should place her in the pantheon of great American leaders. The feats of Martin Luther King Jr. and Thurgood Marshall are by now standard components of public memory and secondary school curricula. But far too few Americans today know Motley's name and deeds. She was King's lawyer, Marshall's co-counsel, and a tactician praised by both as phenomenally talented. Despite her tremendous role in the effort to slay Jim Crow, most books and articles on the civil rights movement understate her importance. So given this fundamental truth and injustice, as well as the many glowing reviews of the biography, we were excited about the possibility of talking with Dean Brown Nagin on the podcast and delighted when she accepted our invitation. Dean Brown-Nagin is Dean of Harvard's Radford Institute for Advanced Study, the Daniel P.S. Paul Professor of Constitutional Law at Harvard Law School, and Professor of History at Harvard University's Faculty of Arts and Sciences. In 2019, she was appointed Chair of the Presidential Committee on Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery. Her previous book, Courage to Dissent, won the Bancroft Prize in 2011. Civil Rights Queen begins with this passage. Sam Terry was killed in cold blood. On February 27, 1949, a Sunday afternoon in rural Manchester, Georgia, about 65 miles south of Atlanta, white officers shot Terry, a veteran of World War II, a member of the Greatest Generation, and a 37-year-old black man, three times in the back, once in the side. Terry had been arrested for a minor infraction that had nothing whatsoever to do with him. Two officers hauled him from his home and locked him in a jail cell. While he was detained, they unloaded their weapons on him, claiming he had resisted arrest and tried to break away from his cell. Terry died of his wounds two days later. His wife, Minnie Kate, standing just outside the cell door, witnessed the events unfold. What she'd seen and heard was an entirely unjustified shooting, a barbaric murder. Constance Baker Motley, then a lawyer at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, known also as the Inc. Fund, took up Terry's case, seeking a federal investigation. The Department of Justice declined. We asked Dean Brown-Nagin why she decided to open the book with Sam Terry's murder. Here's what she said. I chose that beginning in the context of what has been going on in American society since the death of George Floyd. I was struck by the continuity, historical continuity, in the experience of law enforcement interactions with Black men that result in the death of those men. The senseless death, the devaluing of Black life um, struck a chord in me. And I thought, well, I'm going to start the book off in this way to communicate a message. And that is of just deep disappointment, even mourning over the historical continuity. In your discussion of Motley's childhood, you write, in her heart of hearts, Constance Baker was not like ordinary Black folks. 
the most significant fact about her, she often said, was that her parents were not African-Americans. What do you think she meant by that? That sentence is also really important. Um, captures a, a theme that there is great variety in the Black experience, and Motley's experience is unlike that of many of the figures who have been central to the telling of the story of civil rights. She was born to parents who had immigrated to this country from the West Indies, and her father in particular taught her that West Indians were superior to African-Americans, to Black migrants from the South in particular. And either because of or despite of her father's teachings, Constance Baker Motley grew up to be the civil rights queen. However, a part of that teaching stuck in the sense of she was very aware of her uniqueness and connected that to having been reared in a socially conservative, supportive family and supportive community of West Indians. Yale University played an important and complicated role in Motley's upbringing and in her ultimate ambition. Can you tell us about the significance for her of her family's connection to Yale? Yale was vitally important in shaping Motley and her family and their worldview. She grew up in the shadow of Yale University, and her father and virtually all of her male relatives worked for Yale. They worked as laborers of some sort. Her father was a chef, including at one time for Skull and Bones. And yet the father and the family generally were not resentful of their relationship as working class people to this university filled with sons of privilege. Instead, her father read the privilege of his wealthy white male charges into himself. And so that relationship, the growing up in the shadow of Yale, only reinforced the perspective of being different, being special. Noting that, quote, far too few Americans today know Motley's name and deeds, you write, quote, there are many reasons why Motley's life and legacy have escaped examination, most obviously because she was a woman. In Western societies, historical significance is coded male. You also say, if simply being a woman explains partly why Motley is less known, her experience as a working woman also illuminates why she is less widely recognized by the public today than a person of her accomplishments should be. Her persona, reserved, honorable, imperial, and feminine, facilitated her professional breakthroughs in a world premised on masculine norms, steeped in gender stereotypes and dominated by men habituated to both. But those same traits likely worked against her being widely perceived as a transformational leader in the mold of Thurgood Marshall and Martin Luther King, talkative, limelight-seeking, charismatic, and masculine. In all of your research into Motley, did you see signs that if it weren't for her professional ambitions, she would have behaved other than reserved, honorable, imperial, and feminine? That's a terrific question, and terrific because in the case of Motley in particular, 
it is difficult to disentangle her mask from who she really was and her mask from the culture in which she grew up. My sense is that the answer is no, that she was naturally reserved. But, but even as I'm saying this, I'm thinking, well, but she grew up in a household where the parents loved God save the queen and they had been acculturated into accept the idea of having a stiff upper lip. And of course she was a young girl and girls are acculturated to be ladylike and not seen. And so it's hard to know where she began and ended in the context of all of the ways in which these other factors affected her. Nevertheless, I do think she generally was a reserved person and just not a limelight seeker. She put her head down and did the work. You teach constitutional law at Harvard Law School now, and Motley attended Columbia Law School in the mid-1940s. What are some of the ways her experiences in law school would be different if she were attending now, given her gender and race? Motley and all women who attended elite law schools at this time were few in number. And so that meant that they tended to develop bonds of friendship and camaraderie. One of the stories that I tell is about Motley and Bella Abzug, who was a civil rights attorney, labor activist, who became the first woman elected to Congress from New York. They attended Columbia Law School together, and the experience they had was not only being few in number, but being treated differently by professors who didn't call on women students except on what was known as Ladies' Day, when they they would call on women and put them on the spot. As for Motley's experience in learning subject matter in law school, particularly constitutional law, she was learning constitutional law before she and Thurgood Marshall and Robert Carter had toppled Plessy versus Ferguson. And so she was learning about the racial status quo and how at that time segregation was perfectly lawful. And one can't help but think that uh, she very much was inspired in part to seek change because of what she was taught in school, contrary to her belief in non-discrimination. I want to pause for a second on the thought that Constance Baker Motley and her fellow Black law students were being taught constitutional law when that law still maintained that state-mandated racial segregation was permissible under the Constitution. And some of the Columbia law professors at the time handled this outrage in a way that strikes me today as mind-boggling. Here's how Dean Brown Nagin describes it in Civil Rights Queen. Noel T. Dowling, the Harlan Fisk Stone Professor of Constitutional Law, hailed from Alabama and, outside of class, articulated support for Jim Crow. Nevertheless, inside the classroom, Baker remembered, Dowling behaved like a gentleman, even as other students recalled the professor's discomfort around Blacks. By skipping the casebook's coverage of Plessy and other race-related cases, Dowling practiced a genteel form of racism. Race, racism, and American law, said Baker, 
was not part of the course of study during her time at Columbia. So apparently, if an area of jurisprudence makes you uncomfortable and you're a law professor, best just to skip it. Yeah, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. Race and racism are on the constitutional law syllabus in most law schools today, and there have been other significant changes since Motley was a student in the 1940s. But it's worth noting that inequities remain in the classroom. Just as one example, even though women now make up roughly half of the students enrolled in law schools, studies conducted at law schools, including Harvard, Yale, Penn, and the University of Chicago, show that women are less likely to speak in the classroom. They also report facing backlash for speaking in class, which in turn makes them less likely to participate. Unfortunately and unsurprisingly, Motley faced significant discrimination when she entered the job market, too. Law firms essentially refused to hire her, which is why Motley was forever grateful to Thurgood Marshall for hiring her on the spot when she approached him for a job in 1946, just after the end of World War II. She joined her colleagues at the Inc. Fund in what was then a new field of civil rights law, bringing cases that challenged Jim Crow injustices. The Supreme Court had just started becoming receptive to those cases, and we asked Dean Brown-Nagan why the Supreme Court began changing its view of them at that time. Here's what she said. It all occurred against the backdrop of the social changes of the war era of Nazism, and it was understood by most people and certainly by the justices as an irrational hatred akin to um, the discrimination that Blacks faced in America. So there was a, the United States was hypocritical um, in casting itself as the leader of the free world, while inside the country, African-Americans were subject to a whole range of discriminations and oppressions, including violence. The other point I would make about the justice's motivation relates to how African-Americans, even in the context of uh, terrible discrimination, had in fact lifted themselves and found, made opportunities for themselves, becoming educated. There were Blacks who were important voters in the North, and the justices perceived this, and that's the context in which um, they became more receptive to the legal strategy of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. In Motley's own words, if it had not been for Thurgood Marshall, no one would ever have heard of Constance Baker Motley. But she also said Marshall had more faults than one could shake a stick at. Can you tell us about the highs and lows of their relationship, starting with her job interview? Their first meeting included both, in that he regaled her with stories about women whom he knew and respected who were professionals. They would have been school teachers, mostly because that was a profession that Black women in particular could pursue. At the same time, he sexually objectified her by asking her to climb a ladder so he could look at her body. There's continuity in Motley's experience of gender negatively affecting her professional life, including at the Inc. Fund under Marshall. Second episode I'll discuss is how after litigating a pay discrimination case on behalf of Black teachers in Mississippi, Motley 
made her way back to New York and marched into Thurgood Marshall's office to say that she too, um, she wasn't being paid what she should. And he raised her salary, which is terrific. But that episode illustrates how you know, gender was a blind spot. Not, we're not surprised about that. Nevertheless, it's important to tell that story um, in the context of this otherwise progressive civil rights organization. Right. And the final point that I'll make about Marshall and Motley, the ups and downs, involves the case of a big professional setback in 1961 when Motley was denied the opportunity of being Marshall's successor when he left uh, the Inc. Fund. She thought gender very much shaped that decision, that Marshall did not have the imagination to put a woman in the position of the director counsel of the Inc. Fund, and she was disappointed by that. And yet, she always was grateful to Thurgood Marshall, always acknowledged him, and thought that he was an heroic figure. Motley's first experience as a courtroom lawyer came in Jackson, Mississippi in 1949. You write that Mississippi was, quote, the South's most repressive state, which says a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us about their local counsel there. You say her co- Motley's co-counsel was Bob Carter. She and he were both black lawyers from New York. They needed to have a local counsel with them in court. And to give us a sense of the atmosphere that they were walking into, can you tell us how their local counsel, James Burns, who was one of only three black attorneys in Mississippi at the time, how he behaved in court and what conclusions Motley drew from that? It was extraordinary the way Burns behaved. He literally illustrated the subservience of Blacks by walking bent over into the courtroom, never turning his back on the white judge. In other words, showing um, what was expected of him, that Blacks were inferior. He sat far away from Motley and Carter at the council's table, putting distance between himself and the two black lawyers from New York who were challenging the system. He didn't say anything. And Carter and Motley observed all of this. The difference in what they were saying and doing and Burns's behavior spoke volumes. It was clear that he was the local council but perceived helping the lawyers, NAACP lawyers, as threatening. And so he did so within the context of this racially repressive state. And Motley and Carter understood what they had walked into. Would you please tell us about the case at the heart of Motley's first trial and also how her appearance in court was received by the Black community and by the white opposing counsel and judge? The first case in Jackson was a pay discrimination case where Motley challenged the policy and practice of the school district of paying black teachers less than white teachers, no matter uh, their credentials, their qualifications. And the case required her to question the white school superintendents to show that there really was no non-discriminatory justification for the pay difference. And 
the fact of her standing up in court and she stood nearly six feet tall, this woman, Mm -hmm. and questioning white people, white men, asking them to justify a system of discrimination that they took for granted was extraordinary. And African-Americans entered the courtroom to just see her work. It was amazing um, to see her being so defiant of the racial norms in Mississippi. And this is bringing in Bob Carter, her co-counsel, when he walked past a barbershop in Mississippi and Jackson while they were litigating that case, there were people who were reenacting um, the the dynamics in the courtroom. In other words, they were so proud of uh, Motley and Carter for pushing back against the status quo. And yet the civil rights lawyers are also litigating for themselves to have freedom mm-hmm. because they face such... Uh, undignified circumstances inside and outside of the courtroom when they litigated in the Deep South. As the civil rights lawyer who earned the moniker civil rights queen, Motley used the legal system to upend a fundamentally and devastatingly unjust legal regime. Yet, as a federal judge, and I'm quoting you here, this singular woman was not, by her own admission, a gladiator who could or would fundamentally upend the rules of the system. She'd become a part of the system. Her life on the bench illustrates a critically important phenomenon. When icons of opportunity and diversity take the reins of power in American institutions, the structure envelops them. That is fascinating to contemplate. Hmm. Can you give us an example of a time when Motley declined to be a gladiator as a judge? And also, what is the implication of your conclusion in this quote? You know, should agents of social justice avoid positions of power? Hmm, that is not the implication. Okay. <laughs> of, of, of I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> it is it is descriptive of a reality that when one is working within an institution, one has to follow the norms of the institution. And judges, district court judges in particular, are bound by precedent decided by higher courts. And so um, the examples of Motley choosing not to push the law in the way that she had done as a civil rights lawyer are countless. In Title VII employment discrimination cases involving everyday workers, Black workers who sued, women workers uh, who sued for discrimination, Motley's record was not unlike that of most federal judges, which is to say it was really hard for plaintiffs to win those cases. The cases where plaintiffs did prevail involved lawyers, journalists, and others in high status occupations. And um, the, the point I'm making is that there are costs and benefits, if you will, to working within the system. And I, I think it takes all sorts of people. And certainly outsiders should be uh, within these systems with positions of power. You write that Martin Luther King Jr. experienced personal growth as a result of his relationship with Constance Baker Motley. In what way? Dr. King was alleged and known, I I should say, to not treat women on his staff as equals. Ella Baker famously charged that King treated the many women who supported his organization, sometimes with contempt. He saw them as second-class individuals within 
the organization. And she was not happy about that. But with Motley, he had a different experience. She, because of her, her stature and the role that she was playing on her his behalf, she was his lawyer on several occasions. He respected her and he treated her with respect. And I think it's important to know both what the conventional um, story is about king and gender and how in the context of Constance Baker Motley, his behavior was different. In 1961, Motley sat on a panel with Malcolm X. The moderator asked about the status of Black people in America at the time. Malcolm X called Black Americans disillusioned and very angry. Motley challenged him. In the book, you write that she, quote, steered the discussion toward what she evidently perceived as an uncontroversial point through a series of leading questions. You recognize, don't you, she queried, that the struggle for racial equality had yielded, quote, some progress and greater dignity. We don't disagree on that, do we, she pressed. Do you think that the Black American today is substantially better off than he was at the end of slavery, that we have made progress and we're continuing to make progress. But Malcolm X retorted, speaking of the millions of Black people imprisoned at the time, now you have 20 million Black people in America who are begging for some kind of recognition as human beings, and the average white man today thinks we're making progress. So 60 years have passed since that panel, and many people are still having versions of that conversation. Do you think that if Motley were on the panel today, her position on the issue might have changed? That's a really interesting question. I think that Motley would be working under the same assumptions. And her assumption was that one needed to work within the system. And she never would have embraced Malcolm X's bombastic rhetoric or his, at times, his calls to secure freedom by any means necessary. She just was not that kind of individual. She would, however, be deeply uh, distressed and disappointed by the extent of continuity, particularly with discrimination and justice in the criminal legal system, which is the point that Malcolm X was making there. In a recent historic moment, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson became the first Black woman appointed to the Supreme Court. What was it like watching her confirmation process as the biographer of Constance Baker Motley? Before Associate Justice Jackson was nominated and there was discussion about the prospect of nominating an African-American woman, I said to an audience to whom I was speaking about my book on Motley, that uh, they should temper the happiness around the impending nomination with the reality that whoever was nominated would be subjected to unfair characterizations of uh, their record and potentially of their qualifications. And that's precisely what happened. So I, I saw continuity in the experiences of Justice Jackson and Motley, although the terrific discontinuity was that Justice Jackson was confirmed uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court, whereas for a a number of reasons, Motley, um, unfair reasons, Motley was deprived of the opportunity to serve on a higher court. 
This mix of joy and grief is so familiar these days. In this instance, the celebration of the confirmation of Justice Jackson as our first Black female Supreme Court justice, alongside the mourning for how long that moment has taken to come, and for the unjust deprivation of opportunity for Judge Motley. But I'd like to end this episode by celebrating the fact that Judge Motley now has a biography that fully and thoughtfully details her momentous life. I hope it's read far and wide and that folks enjoy and appreciate it as much as we did. And I'm going to say that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Dean Brown Nagin at sites.harvard.edu slash Tomiko Brown Nagin. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find me at eveyohallam.com and Julie at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie.